Singapore launches national mental health and well-being strategy. That's the headline, the Straits Times headline from four days ago, 6 October, where the government announced that there will be a new mental health office. Uh, it, it's a national mental health office that will establish, be established by 2025. So where are we at now? What is the state of the mental health discussion? And of course, especially overseas, people have talked about uh, mental health being an epidemic, especially amongst younger people. And this, some data even suggests that mental health amongst teens is at its lowest in recorded history. So we'll be discussing that with two very eminent and capable guests, doctors. Chua Sukning and Rena Tan and I will be having them on and they are from Singapore Mental Health Matters. So we will have, I am not an expert at all, so I will be hoping that they will be able to guide me on this. So welcome to episode 70 of Tetarik with Wallet. So thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I don't know whether Rena built on us. Mr. Uh, he... Rainer. <laughs> <laughs> he it's like okay. the thing behind already. Um... <laughs> Okay, okay, he, he just sent me a request. Okay, so maybe while we wait for him to come on, uh, firstly, mm -hmm. thank you for doing this. So, uh, Dr. Cho, why Singapore Mental Health Matters? Oh, hi. Why Singapore Matters? Hi, hi Reina. Hello. Yes. Oh, Hello well, hi. I think, Dr. Reina, this question is best taken by you. Why Singapore Mental Health Matters? I, I softball it back to you first. He's the lead, by the way, so we're all like... Yes. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, can you hear me well? Is that yes. All right? Very well. Right, perfect. Um, so, why SG Mental Matters? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think maybe we start from the beginning, you know, of how it formed, right? You know, I think, um, so, ex-NMP uh, and Thea Ong, um, you know, wanted to do work around, like, getting the public's input and citizens' input, rather, on um, you know, like a mental health policy around like accessibility, affordability, quality. And, you know, I think it started this movement of people with lived experiences who really wanted to volunteer and help out, um, you know, to uh, really like assess what's going on back then. So, you know, this was um, born out of that, uh, that initiative. And it has kind of grown since, you know, like a lot of people, including myself, you know, with lived experiences of uh, mental health, with, uh, you know, addiction, you know, some others with different types of uh, um, lived experiences as well, you know, I think we've all come together to, um, you know, work on this as sort of like a citizen-led initiative or, you know, like um, a community-led initiative rather. Okay. Thank you. Anything you want to ask? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the important things that Reina talked about was that this is a, a group of people with lived experiences. So this is not, it's not top down, you know, it's not, we're not just looking at policies. We're not just looking at how things are done from the outside. A lot of, a lot of us are directly impacted by the policies and we kind of lived under that. And so we can, you know, we have the insider experience, I think, to, to then be, be able to lead, lead it further and give feedback on, on how things are affecting people on the ground. Right, so between the two of you, I think you mentioned live experiences four times. So why is it? <laughs> right. So so I guess what I'm I'm getting to is, do you feel that that is extremely important to emphasize? Because why policies have been, especially in this sphere, mm. have been disconnected from live experiences, or? <laughs> 
Let me start with saying, I think one of the important things about that is tackling stigma, you know, because people think individuals uh, who had or have mental illness are incapable of being productive or participating, you know, they're you know the stigma is they're lazy they're crazy you know they're nonsensical mm. and so i think it's not it's not the badge of honor that we have to say oh lived experiences but it's to also tackle the stigma that yeah you know people with these experiences have something valuable to contribute to the community um, mm. but yes it can probably be overused uh i feel like you called this out on it like, <laughs> <laughs> no no i was just trying to clarify yeah uh dr tan anything Oh, uh, yeah, call me Reina. <laughs> oh, Reina, okay, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, no, I'm, I was smiling because I thought, you know, like, or Suk was going to, like, say something about what we talked about, you know, in preparation for this talk, because, you know, like, of course, <laughs> have to, like, prepare, right? Um, but, yeah, yeah. you know, like, uh, what are policies in the first place? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, so do you have that definition with you that you want to Yeah, say? yeah. Okay, so the the um, my ambition is uh, since joining SG Mental Health Matters, I'm often confronted with my ignorance. You know, I first learned intersectionality here in this space, and like you know, it's it's quite jargony, right? Even like policies. Yeah. And I'm kind of just trying to wrap my head around it, and I, I've decided that policies are basically just decisions decisions that that are taken by lawmakers by the government uh even by organizations that are that are in this area that can impact the community so if we if we take out the sort of jargon out of it and it's just like we're just looking at mental health decisions in singapore and whether they are you know uh effectively achieving their intention right because i think most decisions have good intentions um, right. And is it actually, you know, um, achieving the goal that it set out to do? Right. But of course, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So we need good, <laughs> <laughs> good intentions with good policies and good actions, right? It must be together, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, uh, so the next one is, are we okay? Hashtag, are we okay? Public consultation. Uh, do you want to say anything on that? Yeah, well, I mean... I'll wait for Reina to come yeah. back and, and talk about it. I think Reina, you may need to yeah. log off and, and come he, back on probably. Yeah. He spearheaded it. I think one of the things that Stream Mental Health Matters has done really well is wanting to bring these issues to the ground and ask people what are things that are impacting them, what are the important issues to them. Um I think often, you know, policymakers are I guess any anyone we're we're so high level, right? Even like for public health, and our even even for Raynan and I, our experiences don't match, don't necessarily match the general public. Mm. And so I think these public consultations are really important to understand what is important to the community and to be able to reflect that, you know, to uh, the various stakeholders and to highlight these issues. Right. Uh, sorry, I missed a little bit of it, but, you know, I hope this isn't repeating, you know, what Sukhaz already said, but, um, you know, I think, yeah, you know, like, those experiences, you know, match, like, you know, what we're trying to, to get at, you know, whether I think it's effective, you know, I think we have to, 
uh, really evaluate decisions and their intentions based on you know, their, the outcomes that they're hoping to achieve. And I think, you know, a lot of the outcomes, you know, come from the communities themselves. You know, we, uh, I think that's, that's like philosophically, you know, why we decided to do things like a public consultation. Um, you know, like, am I supposed to add a little bit more about like, uh, you know, what our public consultations are like at this point? Yeah, in time? no, we, we just said, you know, we ask people what their experiences are and, and mm. how things are on the ground. Um, that would be the quick summary. Right. And I think, you know, because I was saying that you and I, I think as, as much as we say we live this, we're not representative of the whole community. And so I think asking the community what matters, it's, you know, the important thing for us to then reflect, reflect it back yeah. to the stakeholders. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I, I, I just saw this article uh, earlier today, right? Over 50% of Singaporeans feel that mental health issues are not discussed uh, enough, right? Mm. At the same time, it's, it's almost everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> it's almost everywhere, right? And right. It's, it's everywhere to the point that everybody who talks about it says it's not discussed enough. So, yeah. and both, both can be true, right? It could be that it's everywhere, but it's really not discussed enough because we're just scratching the surface or a lot of people are also saying it because now it's the in thing, it's sexy and they're not delving deep into it and not trying to really understand it. Or What, what do you think? Is there a paradox here? Hmm. Um, I think it can exist because, you know, like we can be talking a lot about it. It's maybe it, it might be the same thing over and over again. It might be just scratching the surface. But, you know, maybe when we say we don't talk enough about it, you know, we don't talk about, you know, like a lot deeper themes, right, around mental health and well-being, you know. Yeah. And also I think, right. um, um, yeah, you know, I think that's, that's my, that might be the missing piece. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think there's a difference between a high-level conversation and the ads that we see, um, like beyond the label. But then that, that doesn't mean you have, you're able to or have people that, uh, that you can discuss these issues with, right? So, on some, and, and that's, that's one thing I worry about, Wanted, that we are saturated with it. So, to right, the point right. that we think, oh, actually, there's no more stigma because it's everywhere. Exactly. But on, at the individual level, people are still, we know that there's the treatment gap, people are, are not feeling well, they are not getting help, they're not getting help early. Um, and people have a really difficult time talking about it. I mean, the latest report shows that a lot of employers don't want to, are reluctant to hire employees yeah. uh, who disclose mental health issues. Yeah. I mean, I even anecdotally, I've, I've known people who publicly talk about the importance of this, but when a family member of theirs uh, go through this, then they are reluctant to except you know they they would say that it's something else you know i guess it's a bit of cognitive dissonance as well so so definitely i mean i share your your concern about the saturation uh making us complacent thinking that this is actually the stigma is not gone when actually it's still highly stigmatized right there is a question here by arun who has done some work on the mental health or mental well-being of indian uh, men especially and and he actually talked about gender and ethnicity. And I was actually shocked, uh, I think last year, when I saw the stats that the, and I think uh, we will be talking about this later on at Project Hayat. And the suicide rate for, uh, it differs 
uh, very drastically across the races. And somehow Indian men uh, were the highest. I mean, it was highest for Indian men. Um, and I don't know whether there is any theory on that. Uh, Rena, uh, would you happen to... Do you want to speak to that or the general uh, general point about gender and ethnicity and how is this proportional? Right. No, okay. Look, I, I try not to make it too theoretical. Okay. But the, the, the two sure, sure. things yeah. that I... I think um, there, there is one which is, you know, minority stress, right? You know, I think in general, when there's uh, someone who has a minority identity, you know, would experience forms of stigma and discrimination that increase their vulnerability, right? You know, to like mental health um, you know, uh, challenges. I think that's one thing. Uh, when you talk about there's a race, uh, intersectionality. You know, that's also one thing that's also quite jargony. But you know, basically, when you have multiple identities that are you know like you know stigmatized or you know maybe you just occupy different identities. Basically, your experiences will be unique, and these unique experiences actually reflect broader you know inequities that you know in the, at the structural mm. level. So you know, I I think um. Those two things come up for me. So, so I that was my first uh, instinct as well, right? But then the Malays are the lowest. The Malays yeah. are the lowest, and then it's the Chinese, and then the Indians much higher. Uh, so if it's just the minority stress, then you should see Chinese lowest, and then Malays and Indians, right? So are there, as in I'm trying to get at, what is yeah. it specific? specifically like, about it in Malaysia yeah. too. Oh, is it? Way. Okay. I mean, yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I, yeah. I feel like I have to confess, guys, I'm not, I'm not fully Singaporean. <laughs> I am Malaysian, no, no hate. Um, I am Singapore PR. <laughs> but, <laughs> okay. Awkward. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing is, we do see that, uh, that similar um, a discrepancy, even in Malaysia. And so one of the things that people have raised is religiosity for, right. for the Malays. Um, and that's a huge thing. And we also know that actually suicide is really high in India. Mm. You know, so there's, there's just something going on. Right, right, I, right. I think that, you know, Raina is pointing out, so there's a minority stress, but it's also that, that cultural piece. Um, I know that, that, you know, talking about mental health issues in, in the Indian culture is not always easy. There's also been highlighted um, a lot of substance abuse issues, um, mm. you know, there. So I think that there are multiple levels. And so it's hard to identify kind of one single thing. Right. Um, but it, it, in both countries, I think it, it says, it, you know, it, it tells us we really need to look at vulnerable communities. Right. Uh, like right. instead of just always like, broad strokes right everyone mental health matters to everyone yes but to some groups mental right. health is a real concern and we have to put more resources into understanding what's going on right thank you for that yeah i, I absolutely agree more research right and and also you mentioned the, the cultural uh, factors as well i mean this is fascinating right this is i mean it's doubly sensitive right we are talking about mental health and then talking about zooming in into race and culture right but it needs to be done it needs to be done when i saw the data i was I was a bit shocked. I didn't expect uh, that. Uh, but thank you. So also just one thing, uh, he also mentioned gender. It's generally true that men are more prone to, to uh, um, men commit suicide more than women, right? But the attempted rates are the same between the genders or? Tend to be higher but completed suicide. Uh, so 
attempt, sometimes the uh, attempted suicide either equal or higher among women, but I completed see. suicide right. would be higher among men because they generally tend to use more lethal methods. Right. Okay. Right. So, but so that that shows that actually mental health issues affect men and women roughly the same. Is that that men? Yeah, I mean, yeah, overall, yeah. Overall, right? I mean, overall, yeah. is the same. Okay. Because, okay, because men it. and women both have mental health and women. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mental. So, yeah. yes. <laughs> so it's not it's not as if the higher suicide uh, rates for men shows that men are more prone to this, right? Uh, no, I, I think. I think that I guess suicide is one indicator, right? And, yeah. You know, like, I think there are multiple, multiple factors that you know, like um, that that lead to you know suicide-related uh, behaviors. You know, I think at least that's what uh, literature calls it. But um, you know, I think you know, basically, you talk about like methods of uh, um suicide. You know, you talk about like different things that lead to these situations that people find themselves in. You know, I think that doesn't mean that one group has poorer mental health. And I think Arun also pointed out that, you know, while, you know, uh, Indians have higher levels of uh, uh, suicide uh, that were reported, you know, like I think Malays, um, you know, have higher levels of poorer mental health outcomes, you know. So, like, there are all these nuances that I think we have to, you know, take into account. Um, but, you know, suicide is, you know, in fact, I guess uh, a very strong indicator of you know, yeah. something that's happening. Yeah. There is also that sense of hopelessness, right? So, right. like suicide, right. I mean, is the is the action that people tend to take because they don't see a viable alternative, right? Right. So we're we're really thinking about groups that that somehow they've reached that and that the path where they go, there is no other option, and that's really worrisome. You know, right. why do they not see um, alternative routes to getting out and, and off? Of whatever they're facing and, and trying to you know um, work it through so I, I think it kind of points to possibly the uh, lack of support as well right. you know for certain communities oh absolutely absolutely so so just just one final one on this before we move on so uh, in relation to what Rainer just said uh, when he was reading out Arun's comment so how do we measure this the what are the indicators since you you two are experts right of uh, mental well-being how exactly do we measure because i mean it's not this when it involves human beings it's not like something you can do in a lab like very easily it's replicable right but there will be scientific or more scientific measures so what what are the possible outcomes that we can use to to ensure as scientifically uh, as robust uh, as possible the the uh, the methodology to determine mental health outcomes mm hmm I guess you know if I start from the the national well-being, uh, you know, mental health well-being strategy, you know, like it actually highlights that oh, you know, these are all the factors from the individual outwards, you know, that affect mental health, well-being and mental health, right? And you know, one thing that catches my eye that I always uh, found missing in a lot of like policy or press releases, you know, from uh, MOH has been the idea of like social determinants of health. You know, I think that's something that's sort of being introduced with like healthier SG with this, right. you know, and I think that's where. Um, you know, the question is actually, I think a few months ago, my friend was like, huh, where do you find social determinants of health data? Then I was like, mm, I actually don't really know. Right. <laughs> you know so it's like, uh, this, this actually needs to be coordinated across like, you know, I guess a lot of different ministries might have things related to it. You know, I think um, that's where we would find that data we need 
um, to really paint a, a, a more nuanced picture. So, such as what? What are these social determinants? Um, you know, like, I guess things around like, say, okay, you know, if we think about structural issues like, you know, uh, uh, socioeconomic status, right. you know, things right. like gender that were brought up, you know, housing status, you know, right. whether you're living right. uh, in like a, a rental flat versus, right. you know, um, yeah, you know, things like that. So it's really related to concrete uh, material or at least it's one aspect of it, right? The, the material well-being. Okay. So, yeah. Well, I would say um, there are many ways to measure. So I think Rainer is talking about the, fa the, the factors that influence mental health. Right. And for, for, to measure mental health, um, Singapore has the uh, National Mental Health Study um, that, that is run. And so they, they would use standardized diagnostic assessments to do that. But that's only for mental illness. And I right. think what is important is to get away from just the illness aspect of mental health. And Raina and I always try to emphasize that, um, that we don't want policies that are focused only on like uh, looking at pathology, right? Looking at health and right. just an illness lens. So the well-being, well-being measures are fairly simple. Actually, the easiest measure is um, there's something to the extent of, are you feeling happy? You know, so of course that's that's state. You know, that's a state level questionnaire. So you could say like, how happy were you this year? You know, so and if you want to get even more nuanced, then we like let me get a bit geeky, and, and your audience could answer this this question of we have three psychological needs to feel uh, to feel agency, a sense of agency, and that you have your say in things and how things are going, to feel a sense of competency and effectiveness and the last one is to feel a sense of connection like mutual connection and so if you can answer yes 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 to all three you're doing pretty good mm. if there's some sort of no in these areas then probably your mental health on the whole is not you know it, it's sort of either in the middle or, or perhaps like doing pretty poor and you can then look at how could you um not just on a health aspect, but how could you get the things that you need in your life to actually, you know, um, live well, you know? Well, what were the three? Uh, the third was connection. So uh, the, the first is uh, the need for autonomy. Okay, autonomy. The second yeah. is the need for competence. And the okay. third is the need for relatedness. And guys, it's from self-determination theory, my favorite social right. science theory. <laughs> right, okay. Um, but it, but it's, it's, it's a really great theory that's been shown to be um, across generation, across cultures, that humans have these three basic needs. So that's, a, that's I think, a very useful way to thinking about well-being. Right. Because right. when our needs are met, then we can thrive, right? So we're not just looking at survival. We're actually looking at this that you know mental health or health is not just the absence of illness but right. it's the presence of actual thriving okay thank you uh, i i completely agree as well uh, i think even even myself when we think about uh, mental health the first the first thing we think about uh, would be illness rather than well-being right i think there there needs to be a shift there so uh, i i wanted to ask i i don't know whether this is provocative or not uh, it seems to me that the pendulum has swung a little bit further than than it should, right? Uh, when I mean, fifteen years ago, nobody was talking about mental health. Um, 
and that was the extreme. Now the pendulum has swung. Like people are self-diagnosing. Everybody now, like it seems like sometimes when I talk to younger people, there's there's a lack of distinction between being sad and being depressed, being an- anxious and having anxiety. And I see people self-diagnosing all the time. Uh, do you think that's a fair assessment, or uh, am I exaggerating? Be honest. <laughs> yeah, be honest. Okay, okay. I, I, you got, you got. Actually, very funny. It's like one psychologist. You know, like I was trained in sociology. Probably, I think you're like political science. Like yes. very social science kind of like discussion. Okay, so from a very structural sociologist point of view, you know, I would just uh, think through. You know, actually, I I view uh, a lot of these things. I mean, as someone who also advocates for lived experiences, you know, like I think when someone says that you know they have anxiety you know like um to the extent of maybe saying that you know they uh maybe have like generalized anxiety disorder even if it's not uh, uh you know diagnosed yet you know or you know maybe it's diagnosed you know i feel like it's saying something that is actually you know reflecting um uh you know what they're going through right you know and i think when these things happen i ask myself you know what is happening for this individual you know and i i i think that's why it's so important Maybe for us not to focus too much on you know pathology and illness and diagnosis mm-hmm. because you know like these things that people say you know probably mean something um, you know that we should dig deeper um, into. Mm. Mm. So it's not so much uh, as in the diagnosis is not as important as the process. The fact that they are saying it is already reflective of something. We have to take it seriously. It's a reflective. Um, yeah, that's, that they're that's experiencing something, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I'm I'm a clinical psychologist, so I can't talk about the structural issues. But I think most people who come in to our clinic who say they're not feeling well, they're not feeling well. You know, I've yet to find someone who says, um, you know, I've been feeling low, and then we go like, oh, actually, everything's great, because it's it's you know there is some we may not know why, but there's a gut feeling often that something's not quite right. Um, I think the idea of labeling, that's an interesting point you're bringing up. Are we over-labeling things? Um, I'll say kind of yellow sometimes, <laughs> but but <laughs> I think it's, it's a way for people to, it, it's a heuristic that people are using to try to communicate to others there's something not quite right, right? And they're using it in some maybe the layman terms, they're saying anxiety, uh, they're saying depression, but they don't necessarily mean clinical. I would say the only thing is don't Google everything. <laughs> like it, it can it can be detrimental right? because everything's on a continuum, right? right? So right. if you're not, if, but I, I, I tell people, because people ask me, how do you know if people are not faking it? I said, you don't. You don't know. And why would someone fake it? You know, fake it usually for such a stigmatized, uh, uh, you know, for stigmatized illnesses like you know the, the various mental illnesses, rarely do people actually want to do it. And if they they're faking ill, there's some, there is something wrong. Right. right, there's something is going on. Right, right, right. Healthy, right. healthy people yeah. don't fake ill. You know, so, so either way, something yeah, yeah. quite right. And yeah, right, right. Uh, so, so, so you're definitely right. I think I I agree with you that even if they're faking it, that shows that there's something wrong, right? But but to just just to push you a little, so I mean, you said why would they, why would they uh, fake it, right? Or what's to begin? Well, there could be the idea of social acceptance. If 
on social media it gives you because i think social media yeah. is a crucial part of this that uh, i think it's a, an extremely yeah. important part and i i mean i am thankful i think reina is a bit younger so maybe he was he did grow up with social media a bit <laughs> but i am just thankful that i didn't grow up with social media because i know that it would have affected me in ways i cannot right. imagine right. um right. so yeah there could be some some yeah. sort of yeah but is it that worrying right like that all your friends are saying to we, in order for me to be accepted i have to be sad yes. i don't think you are healthy in that yeah, way, yeah, yeah. you know what i mean and and so they have yeah, yeah. found we are ironically on instagram <laughs> that there are certain <laughs> dark networks in instagram because of the algorithm would then promote right. to you certain accounts um that that can actually make make your mental health worse so if you put yeah. anything about the stress then you start seeing more accounts that are mentioning that and that has been shown to actually increase the rate of suicide the same for eating disorders i mean that has been highlighted uh, yeah. in the u.s senate so you know i think i think perhaps people might be doing it for attention or to for social acceptance but it, that is to me also indicative that you know that this is a community around illness and not health and there is something wrong if we all get together and says like oh you know my story of distress is worse than yours and yeah. my story of distress and and we don't know how to be accepted um in a, in a healthy way right. you know, in a way that actually is um promotive okay thank you thank you i think i think that was useful so okay let's move on to the more policy part right so how do we add, how do we track mp performance in issues like mental health because <laughs> hey, <bye. laughs> i checked up you're, really quick you're, yeah. going, you're going for yeah, a great like, escape yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, me, so, let me answer let me so, answer yeah yeah so how do we do that because now also again I think Antia really opened the doors for this, right? I mean, and also she was the one who set set this up. But she really opened the doors for this by discussing this in Parliament and so on. Uh, and it's very easy for people just to jump on that and just you know throw a bone here and then MP just mentioned mental health here and then there's no follow up. So how how do we actually me uh, measure and track the MP's performance? Right. No, I uh, I, I guess. It kind of speaks to what we are doing at Ashley Mental Health Matters with like our uh, policy watch, right? You know, if you go to our website, we did publish a report, you know, for the last year, you know, and, and basically every month, um, we have two reports because, um, you know, we're all volunteer run. So like we had to split it to two because we couldn't finish one big report mm. in time. <laughs> right. But, you know, I think uh, we, we, what we do uh, is track the parliamentary questions, you know, on a monthly basis. We also go into like uh, the debates um, around like uh, the, the the budget period, you know, to look at you know when and how mental health is being raised in Parliament. Mm. Um, you know, and mm. the reason why we do parliamentary questions and also like uh, the, the the debates around budget, um, and you know things like adjournment motions and all that is because mm. you know we feel that these reflect, um, you know, like what MPs might be, um reflecting off, you know, their own uh, constituents, right? You know, I think MPs, I guess, in theory, will represent the needs of their own constituents. And so, you know, these questions being raised in Parliament, um, you know, will reflect that. I think that's how we track it um, on a month-to-month -month basis. Right. So I'm looking at your uh, website now. So 
for 2022, 277 PQs were asked about intersectional mental health issues. Uh, that's that's quite healthy, no? Um, I think quite healthy. So okay, um, if you if the, this, let me explain what this intersectional mental health issues right. are. Okay, so like um, uh, you know, we we did uh, our volume one, we did count everything that said you know explicit mental health. Mental health. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it does doesn't do service to it does a disservice to you know the the the, the issues around mental health because it is so you know like uh, intersectional you know and how do we think through all these like search terms that around intersection intersectional mental health PQs is because we did our public consultation and our public consultation told us that okay there are these vulnerable groups you know that you should look into so we use those search terms. We also looked at right. things around, let's say, stress, suicide, and all that. So, you know, like, if we say 277, um, and then we exclude the supplementary questions, because, mm -hmm. you know, we, we just want to count maybe, like, the, the, the PQs themselves. Um, out of 2515 total PQs asked in 2022, um, that means it's about, like, 8.4% of questions mm -hmm. raised were around intersectional mental health issues. Um, is that good or bad? I don't think we have a real benchmark, but you know, I think mm -hmm. it tells us that it's being talked about um, uh, in Parliament. Um, but you know, um, yeah, you know, question for us to throw back to to maybe the the public is is eight point four percent enough. Mm. But um, Raina, like that's eight point four percent. But but you you know, we also found like only fifty nine questions were direct and explicit. Um, related to mental health, that's two point three percent, right? So we could kind of say like, uh, uh, how many questions are really addressing mental health specifically? Um, then it, it's not that many, and we found that they tend to peak in certain months. One of it, which is October, the October month of mental health, because it's on mental health days, and I think that that all of a sudden people are paying attention to it more. Mm. Um, but we we're not really going to get a healthy society if you know, one once a month, you know, a month out of a year, we're like, oh yeah, mental health, right? Right. Let's let's try to do everything then, and then we know that that there is actually no consistent follow up to to these issues raised. There's perhaps less accountability, and then another another year passes, and then people go, oh right, what about that issue? And so sometimes we actually found that some of the uh, same questions are being asked um, repeatedly. Um, and I think this report is trying to provide a, a, a record of what's being asked and so that, you know, and, and MPs and, and, you know, even the public can go, okay, where are we heading? Are, you know, are we mm. maturing in our discourse? Are we progressing in what we're understanding? Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's super important. Right. So what, what can citizens do to move the needle? Hmm. What can citizens of like, PRs do? What can citizens of PRs do to move the needle? Um, well, I mean, you know, I think I, I, you know, I hear this a lot, but you know, like uh, you're talking to an MP, you know, right. like I think one thing that you could do because you know that's that's definitely something that you know brings to the forefront of one's like many competing priorities, you know, around like um the, the, the health, you know, mental well being, right? I think that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think one thing that we I feel that we kind of lack 
right now. You know, like if we look at the strategy, we have identified certain vulnerable groups, right? You know, like youth, you know, like pregnant mothers and so on. And these are actually, I guess, all because, you know, we have a lot of data in those areas. But, you know, like um, if we have more data on, you know, vulnerable groups, um, you know, participate in things like, you know, research and, you know, to really like, um, to, 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 to maybe talk more about your experiences. I think that could also help us get more data on, mm. you know, like, where should we focus on, you know, in terms of vulnerable mm. groups? Um, yeah, it expands the discourse and the conversation around that. Okay. I also pitch for that data point is to have open data. I'm a big fan of that because I think there is a lot of data, a lot of people who can analyze it, but if it's only in the hands of a few, actually, you know, our knowledge isn't progressing as fast as it could, you know, if, if more pe more minds, right, could actually look at what's happening and different people would then highlight uh, different issues and, and help us to understand what's what's important for us to focus on. I, I would say like as an ignorant person, just like don't even don't you can just raise the issue. Don't worry about how it's going to be solved. I think right. the job, exactly. the, our job as, as the community members is just raise important issues. It was exactly. important to you, important to your family, your friends and and keep raising these things because they are as, as Raina said so many competing voices so if you want to make a dent right you got to be consistent you played a long game but these are important issues uh, to be resolved and to be addressed oh 100 percent. i i never got it when people sometimes you know uh, policy makers will ask oh what's your solution it's, it's not my job it's your job right i think it's, it's good if the mm -hmm. citizen uh, suggest a solution mm -hmm. as well, but the the onus is not on the citizen, right? And mm -hmm. I should be I should be a minister if you want me to solve <laughs> a thing for you, right? But, yeah, uh, and, yeah, and like the citizens, our our solutions don't don't take into account all the secret knowledge exactly right, that the mm -hmm. MPs right. have. So exactly, you know, our solutions right. are going to be talk, uh, often going to be like a partial thing, and so yeah. our job is just I think raise problems, raise right. concerns. Don't worry so much about right. is there a working right. solution. And if there's no demand, there won't be supply. Right? And sometimes, as uh, I think as the two of you rightly pointed out, there are so many things that are on their minds as policy priorities. Then mm -hmm. they would obviously champion the ones that people are most interested in. Right. So if we don't tell them, then they would, they would not uh, know that it's a mm -hmm. priority as well. So Project Hayat, the National Suicide Prevention Strategy, uh, work group, right? So I, I want to get to that, right? But uh, I wanted to ask uh, the two of you on this. Uh, I don't know whether you know uh, Professor Jonathan Haidt. He's a psychologist mm -hmm. uh, based in the US. And he has a, a theory that uh, maybe I don't know whether the two of you agree with, but I am quite attracted to the idea of how people today have become more fragile, right? Millennials uh, and uh, Gen Zs. Partly because of overparenting, um, so partly, of course, social media. I think that's a huge one. But partly because of overparenting, and and there are many many reasons why uh, people overparent and they are overprotective nowadays. But the biggest uh, reason is structural because people have fewer children, therefore they are more protective. Uh, do you think that is that is one of the root causes? where we are protecting mm. children so much at such an early mm. age, such that any exposure to difficulties, uh, they, they start to crumble. I mean, I, I've mentioned mm. so many times before, you know, everybody gets a gold medal. I am 
thoroughly against that. You know, sports day, everybody gets a gold medal. Um, did did, did you want a gold medal too, Wallet? <laughs> no, no. See, see, that's that's always the the easy easy way out, right? That's the that's the easy way to to dismiss uh, an important point. Oh, did you want to do that? Did you want? And then you didn't get it, right? When actually, wouldn't wouldn't you say that that does something to? In fact, my son got a gold medal, and I told his school that that shouldn't happen, right? Uh, so it's the opposite of what you said. But uh, wouldn't that be the uh, a possible uh, explanation for fragility? You think? I mean, it's a great question. <laughs> um, oh. I, 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 I actually am. Quite opposed to people calling the 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 new generation a strawberry generation because I don't I think it overlooks and dismisses that this generation of the so the each new generation is dealing with a lot more stress um, than the older generation as as you said right the social media right like and these are new challenges that we don't know how to help. The younger generation cope with so the idea of resilience actually came from out of the study of of children who were exposed to really threatening circumstances right so you can think about orphanages you can think about you know impoverished circumstances and some of these kids were able to develop within the normal range we're not thinking like top of you know like top a scores that go to super all schools are good schools, guys, but you know, <laughs> there's better schools, right? But just thinking like normal development. Um, and so we are really thinking that resiliency is, you, you, is, are you able to cope from really difficult situations, not regular situations, right? So we have to understand that this younger generation, I think they're faced with stresses that, this, that even I don't quite understand. You know, and I, I sometimes I'm like, how do I help you? How do I equip you right. uh, to be able to handle the stress that I myself have never encountered at so young an age, at 10 years old, being exposed to so many voices, so many criticisms, everyone, everyone's eyes on you. And I, I can say, just ignore life. It's okay with it. Mm. But they, they can't, you know. So I think one of the things is, yes, maybe not fragility in so much as we're not doing a great job equipping uh, our younger generation to face these stresses. And so the stresses are, cons uh, are never ending, is every day. And, and I think we have to really kind of think of, instead of dismissing it as like, oh, this is a fragile generation, is think, okay, how do we help this generation face stresses that are are so new like even ai right and, and so, I mean, so how do we like do that controversies for that well i only raised the problem of it if i i think you know i think we have to look into it because uh, i mean there was this incident of bullying where where um young women you know ai you know um constructed images of them uh, that they were supposed to be nude were then spread around town and they were yeah. never nude. They were these right. AI constructed images. So we've never had encountered that kind, that level of uh, stress before. Mm. Um, so I, I don't want to say fragility because I'm also aware of the uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, mm. right? And so I think we, we 
can't see that generation as fragile. Right. Reina? Yeah. Um, well, so thanks for covering all the clinical, theoretical, you know, perspectives. You know, like I can, I can speak from the perspective of an overprotected uh, son, you know, growing up. You know, and you know, I, I love my parents to bits, right? You know, like this is like over, I wouldn't say overprotected, I'm like, you know, overloved. You know, I'm very privileged to have that. Mm. But you know, I think one thing that, in spite of that, I also grew up with a lot of, you know, like challenges, right? Because, you know, there are so many things that, uh, that happen, uh, you know, growing up that parents don't know about, you know, increasingly, even for this generation with more stuff that's going online, of course. You know, there's a whole different life that your children might have, exactly, have you yeah. know, nothing about, you know, and I think right now, if we think about the solutions, it's also probably not just, you know, equipping parents with it, but, you know, equipping uh, children and youth directly, you know, with some of these skills. You know, therefore, you know, the schools and, you know, like social, you know, circles become super important. I think also in terms of like, um, you know, I, I, I think we, 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 we also probably need like youth voices involved, right? Into like, you know, really like asking, you know, what yeah. do they need and, you know, what helps for them um, in this whole <laughs> equation. Um, so, you know, I think um, maybe not giving parents too much credit for, you know, like, shaping children <laughs> you know i think like society and even more so technology nowadays like you mentioned you know like uh playing a mm. huge role in that that whole um uh equation yeah but the technology part we cannot really control right like because the big tech but will you can do equip you right can, right right yes exactly. you can equip uh, you know the, i think the um sort of literacy among among the young is really important um right I, I had a thought, and I'll, I'll, I'll be quick about that one, because I don't yeah. think giving medals actually improves self-esteem. Yeah. Right? I mean, if it did, well, I mean, we would have every, <laughs> all kids will feel so worthy and worthwhile about themselves, right. and we know that that's not true. Um, it, so it, it maybe actually is not doing much, you know, again, this is one of the good intentions thing, right? right. What what were the all these medals trying to do? Was it trying right. to to help this child or help children feel good about themselves. And we know that isn't working. So yes, let's not give everyone medals if it's not working, but let's help everyone develop a healthy self-esteem. Right. You know, I think that's, that's a positive. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so that's, that's brilliant. Right. So I, I'm always thinking like as a, as a parent, where, where is that line? Right. So because you want to equip them, you want to equip them with enough self-esteem, uh, but you don't want them to be, uh, Overvalidated, right? And and you don't want to underpraise, you don't want to overpraise, and there's always that line where it's it's very difficult, you know. So I I always am unaware of which side of the line uh, that I'm on. So I mean, yeah, but I I just thought that uh, Jonathan Hyde's uh, research was something that really spoke to me a bit. Um, and and I I agree. I think it's really about equipping our children, uh, and and youths and younger people with with the right tools but but don't forget mental health also affects the elderly as well right and mm. it's it's a huge uh i mean my uh, uh my my dad passed on a couple of years ago and you can see that uh, i mean obviously it has it would have an effect on my on my mom right and uh, when when your partners uh pass on so i mean it different generations have different challenges when it comes to mental health yeah, so I, I think uh, while yes, we we focus on the youth. I think there's the elderly also. Uh, there's a uh, there is and going to be an epidemic a of, of loneliness. The peak of um, suicide is among the the sort of 
young adults and it kind of stabilizes it goes down and it peaks again with the elderly so actually a lot of elderly uh, and they oh. are taking their lives yeah right oh okay so uh if, in singapore you mean uh, yeah. a lot of elderly are taking yeah and it's, it's a trend i mean it's a worldwide well, trend but right. it's I, I think you're right it's something that isn't looked into enough right. i think you know because we think i mean i don't want to sound cold but i I think sometimes we're thinking, okay, who has the most potential, right? Right, and right, sort right. Of young people, right. And so, unfortunately, the elderly are not always seen as the group to be invested right. in. Uh, and and that needs to be corrected as well, right? Okay. So, and, and I think that's a good segue. So, Project Hayat, you wanna tell us a little bit about it? Um, okay. I, I think one thing about Project Hayat is, um, you know, basically developing. Uh, national suicide prevention strategy, right? It is something that I think the a World Health Organization has recommended. And you know, I, what 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 what's special about Project Hyatt is a ground up working group. You know, a lot of our community members are driving it, but we also have um, policy makers. Um, you know, like representatives in the working group. We've got corporates involved. You know, because like the workplace is definitely something super important. Uh, we've got researchers, um, you know, and actually research is going to be a very big part of it, right? Because we want to really consolidate um, a lot about what we've already done on suicide prevention in Singapore. You know, like we also want to kind of look into like all the different suicide prevention strategies around the world, see what's applicable to us, you know, and also um, really recommend something that will be very constructive for Singapore. Um, you know, I think suicide prevention strategy is also something that maybe hasn't been done before because it is so multifactorial and you know there's so many different factors involved in it that's so upstream you know so i think that's something that uh, we will try and explore in this hmm. um, project do you have any uh, tentative uh, hypothesis on what what could work well i think one thing that we really want to expand the conversation on something we've been talking about, which are vulnerable groups, right? You know, we know that the vulnerable groups um, are not just the ones that maybe have been highlighted so far in the national well-being and mental health strategy. You know, we, we will be looking at, you know, like low-income migrant workers, we're looking at like the, mm. uh, you know, sexual minorities, gender minorities, um, you know, racial minorities, you know, all these things are actually really important factors that, you know, need to be uh, talked about and you know like we already talked about some of the nuances among racial minorities you know that i think um, these all are things that we really need to tease out perhaps not in the next one year when we develop the white paper but you know over time you know, this will then open the conversation for you know more research in these areas right and of course hayat means life in in malay right and i'm assuming that's that's how the name came about yeah yes <laughs> Oh, no. oh, yeah. <laughs> initially, <laughs> initially, I think it was like Project uh, Vida. Then we were like, mm, why is it like Latin or, you know, it should be something that <laughs> resonates more, you know, like more localized. You know? Right, okay, okay, got it. Okay, thank you. My final question to the two of you, right? What is the ideal uh, mental well-being outcome that you, the two of you would like to see when, let's say, if all your work comes to fruition, right? In five years' time, this is how you envision it to be. I mean, it, mm. it must be realistic. I think it cannot be unrealistic. But in five mm. years' time, what would mm. you like to to see in terms of mental health outcomes in mental well-being outcomes in Singapore or Malaysia? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> 
Uh, mm, okay, maybe okay. One thing that comes to mind for me is um, I think it's very tragic if um someone is going through an issue and has no one to turn to. You know, and I think um for me, if someone is able to identify that they're going through an issue, um, they they know where to go. They know what resources to tap on. You know, and they have the means to do so. I think you know we've kind of like met that goal. You know, I that that for me is like what I feel um, mm. should be happening. And that you know, like it comes back yeah. to that lived experience, right? And I'm not talking about data. I'm not talking about uh, uh, you know what kind of like percentage we should reach. But from a very human level, you know, like someone mm. shouldn't have to go through something like that. Mm. Mm. Okay. This is um. I mean, un- underlying what Raina's point of, of um, humanizing and valuing people, uh, like intrinsically, right? Not because of health status. So it'd be great if if we don't have policies that that are actually based on myths of stigma, right? Not on research that says that that we start excluding people because of their health as it, and, and often it is a stigma that sticks with them even if they recover um, from their depression or they, their anxiety is under you know it's managed it's just mental illness as a, as a whole and I think we have to be more nuanced that some illnesses actually need more care some illnesses need different supports I would love to see systematic uh, consistent support in, in schools so it's not left up to individual teachers you know, but there's actually policies in schools and, and sort of SOPs and if, if a, how, how do students get help with, if they don't want to disclose their condition to the teacher, right? right. I mean, that, that should really be, you know, it can be private, but, and so there's just going to be a central body that can also manage that. So I think that stigma piece for, for me, I think Rena is agreeing, is, is really important, but then actually seeing it play out in really practical ways that that go a long way to improve people's lives right so even for i guess for employers sometimes employees wouldn't want to do that because they're worried about let's say this information will it be passed on to the next employer or so on right mm-hmm. so there are those sorts of concerns right informally at least that yeah. uh, that results in under reporting yeah. yeah for sure and, and I, i'm I mean, people don't want to get help. One, of course, they, they are concerned that that would affect their job progress. But, but then for that to stick, you know, that label and all the, yeah. all, the, all the prejudices, the discrimination, the assumptions to stick with you, it's unlike any other health issue we see, right? If you're a cancer, right, of course, right. then you're not able to work for a long time. But you're not then go, oh, this guy shouldn't be promoted even right. if he gets well. But that it's not the same for for mental illness often it sticks with you and follows you throughout thank you so much dr chua and dr tan uh sorry i promised 45 minutes but we've gone for almost an hour but i think it's apt because today is world mental health day right i should have started with that uh and it's good (laughs) and i think would it be better to to use the term mental well-being you think than mental health Uh, ah, okay. <laughs> this, is a, this is a nice way for us to like talk about something we've been talking about, a uh, debate, right? We didn't ask. So, like, I think men- mental health make it seem like just a health issue, you know? And I think 
mental well-being and you know i think just well-being in general right you know makes it mm. more existential you know and i think this is why we've been also kind of like going on and on about like a permanent mental well-being office you know that's situated at a higher level that's beyond you know like moh because um you know over over and over again policy watch you know we find that a lot of the pqs us even are just not about health you know not directed at right. moh so you know like if we call it well-being you know we kind of like shift that we shift the paradigm right. away from illness pathology to something more holistic and you know something that applies mm. to everyone you know whether whether or not you got diagnosed with like a, a mental health condition right okay so i mean yeah i mean i found it strange that it wasn't under pmo uh, this uh, this new committee that is under ministry of health and msf right it's uh, jointly under them or something so um is that a reflection that it's not as much of uh, an existential issue as climate change uh, i don't know uh, but i i mean i i do <laughs> hope that it is given the the same amount of attention so uh, that's rena stans uh, so mental wellbeing over mental health or? i oh oh <laughs> <laughs> um because of the word uh, the the negative connotations associated with the word mental and how it's used as an insult i think that it's a good argument to then you know kind of take it just because people associate it with like even mental means crazy yeah yeah, right? yeah so taking it you know taking it out of that and just helping people understand i think the holistic picture that yes there's health but there's also even climate change affects your well-being right it's, it's it's so Indeed. broad it's so across every every aspect of your life um that you know so i would go with well-being because it is very holistic and it's how you're doing right now or, or in your life okay so let's let's do that let's use well-being over health uh from now on hopefully i mean i mean it's an adjustment an adjustment thank you so much i think i learned so much on the topic today and it was really a pleasant conversation. Uh, good night, everybody. I'll see Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. No problem. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.